This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. And good Tuesday afternoon. No, not Linda Swain, obviously. I'm Brian Callahan. And for most of this week for Linda, she dips into some well-deserved leave. And uh, this is News Talk, but this just in. All is well once again in Leafs Nation. Parade planning is back on, I hear, at least until the next heartbreaking loss. Uh, I don't know. I just want to dip right into some sports. It's quite astonishing how they can just flip the switch and turn the tables like that in a big playoff game in the third period, or just as startling as how Tampa Bay managed to let it all happen, given the veterans on that team. And a good bit of that falls on the netminder, of course, Vasilevsky. But I digress. This is news talk. But if you want to talk sports, you want to talk anything today, we always have the phone lines open on this show, you know, if you happen to have a few minutes free. And you hear something that piques your interest and you've got an opinion on it. Well, that's what we're here for. Let's talk news. There's lots and lots to go on. Lots on the go, I should say. Numbers to call, by the way, are the same as open line. 709-273-5211 or 1-866-590-VOCM. Don't forget the 709 before the 273, of course. If you want to talk sports, hockey, the playoffs, or even NBA playoffs, the drama that follows people like Draymond Green and LeBron, and how about the performance last night by Jimmy Butler for the Miami Heat? I know we don't often talk about NBA here, but I know you're out there, you people who are following it, now, even, if the, uh, even if the Raptors aren't in the mix. Uh, we could even talk Nick Nurse and where he's going to end up. Then, of course, is the Growlers. Let's not forget, the Growlers are uh, back in action on Thursday night. Of course, it was... Um, Interrupted by the um, flights and cancellations and that sort of thing due to weather, uh, specifically uh, the perfect storm of crosswinds and fog out at the airport, um, set back the uh, playoffs by a couple of days. So the Growlers resume now against Adirondack on Thursday night at Mary Brown Center. And then, of course, the Rogues, then there's the Jays and Vladdy. And, uh, but yes, that's sports. This is News Talk. And uh, getting back to the news of the day, talk, dip into something a little bit more important if you want to talk about today. As we've been reporting, of course, another postponement in the trial of Kirk Keeping. This is the gentleman charged in the murder of Chantel John in Con River in 2019, January of 2019, which really was four and more than four years ago now, four and a few months. Long time to get through the courts. Uh, a lot of this has been tied up with uh, Mr. Keeping's desire to uh, um, have representation by a private lawyer paid for by the attorney general. This does happen in the criminal justice system in in unique cases, whether there's a conflict between legal aid lawyers, whether it's difficult for um, him to find one without a conflict of interest. A lot of the details um, of that have, um, are, not all of it can be published or, or can be broadcast at this point. Some Much of it is um, behind the doors of the Court of Appeal, which is it's still public reporting, but um, in some cases, uh, you know, it's, uh, we have to be careful with some of the details around this and getting too much into um, uh, bans, especially in such a serious and important and critical and heart-wrenching trial uh, incident that occurred in Con River. There was pro- protests outside the uh, Supreme Court in, Gra- in uh, Grand Falls, Windsor this morning over this. Um, supporters of Chantel John and the community of Con River uh, over the postponements. And now new trial dates have been set for next year. So that's another year. Uh, it could be there. He'll be back in court, Mr. Keeping, in a month to argue again for um, an appeal, uh, the denial of a private lawyer. He's still arguing for that. 
uh, actually fired his two legal aid lawyers the day before the jury selection two years ago. And that's what's uh, been holding up the trial. Hard on everyone. But again, it's the system and it's uh, the way it does allow and they have to follow the system or else you get into appeals and things thrown out and redos and that sort of thing. So which we've seen in recent years. So that's the uh, Kirk Keeping trial. Um, Then there's the um, going back to the PWC attack, of course, back in March, March 9th, I believe. And um, the one person that's above the age of 18 who can be named. Uh, because he is uh, considered an adult before the eyes of the court. There are five people charged with attempted murder or being an accessory to attempted murder. Um, The other four are in their teens between 14 and 16, and they can't be named. And we have to be very careful with uh, uh, what happens in trial with them again. Of course, there are so many bans uh, involving uh, minors in the courts. But uh, Tyler Greening is 18. Um, He's accused in this case of being an accessory, basically helping to... Um, uh, facilitate the escape, basically, of any of the uh, alleged perpetrators of the 16-year-old boy, of course, who we know was left with serious head injuries in that case. So Tyler Greening was uh, granted bail originally. He was arrested last Friday and now is back, um, with, was back for the court this morning to uh, seek bail again. His lawyer, Bob Buckingham, was successful in that. And Tyler Greening is freed again. Um, I do know, I just learned a, sh- a short time ago that the uh, the condition of his bail that he did breach was the curfew, and he's required to stay in his paradise home between 12 a.m. and 6 a.m., and uh, it's alleged that he did not do that at some point in the past couple of weeks. So, uh, again, that's still an, al- an allegation, um, uh, and it's why he was arrested. So that still has yet to be proven in court. So um, there are five people charged, as we said, and the other four are still making their way through youth criminal courts, so we'll be keeping an eye on that. Then, of course, there's the myriad of other stories. There's the PSAC strike, if you want to weigh in on that. Um, the crab fishery dispute, which continues. And just when you thought it was safe again to park overnight downtown, along comes the street cleaning schedule. Uh, I'm signed up for email, so, you know, uh, I keep a close eye on it when I see it. And it's often the odd or the even side of the road downtown St. John's, but... And then there's the roulette that goes on, trying to find a space somewhere else, either on the other side for the night or wherever, to try to avoid uh, getting a ticket, which I got dinged for last year. Seriously considered uh, fighting it, but, uh, you know, that's like fighting the snow ban when there's no snow down, which some people are doing, and we'll see what comes of those. If one of those cases makes it to the court successfully, you'll see, I would say, a deluge of them uh, in the future. And then, of course, there's the House of Assemblies back in session today. Um, but, you know, uh, the most um, recent thing to see that I saw this afternoon, and I'm going to switch gears right to it, is the uh, there was an update this afternoon from uh, Mayor Brian Keating in Marystown regarding the Canning Bridge, which we know um, was deemed unsafe back in February and shut down unceremoniously on short notice and left a lot of people in the lurch. You know, it saves extra time, uh, not saves extra time, it gave, put, added extra time to the trip. Uh, down around the boot if you had to go somewhere uh, and use that bridge. So the bridge, of course, uh, was closed to traffic in February. As I said, a preliminary like schedule and report for the engineering and construction of a replacement, that's expected to take several years. That's now in the hands of the town. And um, Marystown Mayor, as I mentioned, Brian Keating, he just provided an update just over an hour ago on, this, on the very latest on the Canning Bridge. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it's been a long time since I got the chance to give you an update on the Canning Bridge. Uh, 
Uh, for the last uh, couple of weeks, we've been back and forth with Department of Transportation and uh, getting some information on the bridge. Uh, we finally got uh, from the provincial government, which I'm very thankful for, uh, I'd like to say once again, thanks to the Department of Transportation Infrastructure and Minister Loveless and our MHAs for helping us out. Unfortunately, the good part or the bad part is that we did get the report. The bad part is the report is right here in my hand. It's 450 odd pages long. As I told you, for full disclosure to the residents of Marystown, the south side, especially in the Little Bay and Bulbye area, um, we are uh, letting anybody that wants to uh, review this uh, document to come to the town hall to review the document. Unfortunately, we're so, such a large document, we can't put it out over the internet or on Facebook or anything like that. But uh, we are opening our doors for any residents uh, want to come in and review uh, this document, but it'll be by appointment only, because you understand we can't have 20 people coming through the town hall. But I will give you a little word of advice. We've been, uh, myself and a couple of the other cancers, we've been reaching out and getting some advisory and getting some information on it. There's some very high-tech information on it. There is some pictures there, which I like the pictures part. But the bridge is in uh, hard condition, and all the report do verify and back up the closure of the bridge but don't take that information from me you're more than welcome to come look at the documents there's uh, schematics uh, there's load testing there's uh, dived uh, results there's steel ndts and everything done you're more than welcome to come because like i promised you full disclosure on the bridge but the appointment by appointment only one other thing I'd like to say, we did reach out and had a meeting again last week, Department of Transportation, and the residents are asking us, uh, how about motorcycles on the county bridge? Are we going to open up the lane for motorcycles only? Of course, we're live for pedestrians to keep using it. We did ask that question. They are reviewing it. They did not reply to us yet, but uh, I have been having great success, myself and the CAO and all the other councillors working with the department. So uh, I know everything don't happen so fast as we all like, um, but we are still working on it. We do have to report. And as you're all aware, as you can see, there's been some different dive crews here, survey crews here, uh, doing analysis on the bridge and looking at designs. So we're still in early stage, and I apologize for that, but uh, we are working on keeping you up to date. Uh, one other thing I would like to bring forward to you on a little more somber note, uh, which is uh, the money is in the county bridge, as you see, Minister uh, of Finance, uh, Siobhan Cody Nance. The money is there. There is going to be a three-year span uh, with engineering design. And so we let everybody get prepared that there is going to be three years. And maybe you'll see no action this year on construction or de demolishing their bridge, but there is design and engineering work being done as we speak. So that's, that's not going to happen so fast as we're all hoping, but it, when it's done, it will be the right bridge for the location. It also will be a secure bridge for another 100 years. So that is... I guess that's all I can give you an update on the bridge. Uh, 
Now, we reached out about parking. Department of Transportation is going to send us a, a no parking zone on the north and south side of Canning Bridge, but there will be a zone that's designated that you can park. Uh, so we're hoping to have that laid and that schematic so we can do the identification while Department of Transportation will do the identification for the parking. But one thing I will ask to all the residents of the Bjorn Peninsula and Marystown area that are uh, parking on both the county bridge, both sides, south and north, make sure that you do not park in front of the removal barriers because that's the barrier we will need to remove in emergency situations like ambulances and fire trucks. So please do not park in the removal barriers until we get uh, parking identified. And feel free once again to reach out to me. You got my cell numbers, 709-277-0612. Uh, Call me. If I can give you any information, I'll give you what I can. And as more information comes in, I think we'll get a little more information more regular in the next couple of weeks. We are also uh, wrote a letter. We're going to be meeting with the Premier and the Minister. We wrote a letter. We actually sent it out today to get uh, maybe a defined schedule and some more clarification. But in saying that, uh, our communications have been quite open in the last eight to ten weeks. And uh, I hope they'll stay open. And the more information we get, as soon as we get it, that's valuable and factual information, we'll release it to the residents of the town of Marystown and the Bjorn Peninsula. That is the mayor of uh, Marystown, Brian Keating. They're giving an update on the uh, Canning Bridge status, of course. It's been closed since mid-February, causing... More than a few headaches, you know, the norm is out the window um, as far as being able to just, you know, you don't know what you got until it's gone. Um, a couple of highlights, of course, he said, you know, the good news is they have the report. The bad news is that it's huge and it'll take a while to get through it. So much so that, you know, distributing it in that is kind of off uh, out of the question. So if you want to see it, you got to make an appointment to come see it. We'll go through it and we'll have more on that tomorrow morning on uh, your VOCM mornings. Some news stories associated with it and we'll dig a little deeper and uh, hopefully hear something soon on more of an exact time frame of when uh, when they're going to find a replacement for that bridge um, and uh, and choose a design. So this is News Talk. I'm Brian Callahan in for Linda Swain. We'll be right back. Your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 530 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. This is Brian Callahan back uh, in for Linda Swain today on News Talk. And, uh, you know, you don't have to look too far to see signs of climate change especially around the big land. So uh, with that in mind, leaders from the uh, Nuatukvuk Council have been in New York this week for the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. You're basically, you know, doing a deep dive in the increasingly concerning signs of climate change in northern indigenous communities and how it's impacting and changing the way of life, which we see every day. Uh, it's not just easy to jump on the on the rig and go across the ice now. It's just not as um, as guaranteed as it used to be. Uh, with that in mind, Amy Hudson, of course, is the chief governance officer. She's also the rights, chief rights negotiator with the Nunatuvut uh, Community Council, Nunatuvut. And she spoke just a short time ago with uh, VOCM's Noah Shepard. I, with uh, colleagues from NCC, I'm back in Happy Valley Goose Bay now, 
um, attended the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues, um, where we had an opportunity to talk about the importance of Inuit governance um, to in, in, in as part of a global response to to climate change. So the forum this year um, and each year there's a thematic. Um, session for the forum that brings together indigenous peoples um, and member states from across the world. Uh, this year we were talking about indigenous peoples, human health, planetary health, and climate change, a rights-based approach. So a super significant uh, forum for us um, as we, our communities, and our people continue uh, to face you know, rapidly changing impacts of, of climate change. So um, we had an opportunity to speak to the Assembly, uh, the United Nations Assembly, um, in front of the world and uh, really talk about the importance of uh, Inuit governance and our people's knowledge and experiences and uh, how we have to be a part of that uh, to inform um, global uh, responses to climate change. And of course, this is a part of a, um, a of a larger conversation that's going on and has been has been going on around the world amongst indigenous uh, communities with respect to um, having their having um, you know indigenous rights upheld and, and voices and experiences heard to be a part of co global climate change. And then, of course, we have scientists and researchers who are um, uh, increasingly beginning to discuss. Uh, and realize that diverse Indigenous voices, experiences, and science is required in order to um, respond to climate change. And what are the impacts your communities are seeing uh, from climate change? Um, yeah, and I mean, so we're we're working with our communities um, to identify uh, some of the most emerging priority impacts of, of climate change. And, and so just to give you an example of some of the primary things that uh, we are dealing with is, um, you know, uh, sea ice, changes in, changes in sea ice. Uh, this uh, sea ice in our communities, for many of our communities, is a is a highway, is a, <laughs> is a transportation system, and it connects us to uh, our kinship. Uh, uh, to our families, it connects us to our traditional places. Um, you know, during the winter and spring, uh, it's, it's a time that we travel. Um, it, it's how we access our traditional foods during those times of the year as well, and how we pass on traditional knowledge. So it's a it's a vitally important uh, um, mode of transportation for us. Coastal erosion and rising sea levels um, are increasingly threatening uh, our cultural heritage sites, so for example, archaeology sites. Um, these are really important sites, of course, right, for ensuring that we capture and pass on knowledge uh, to future generations from, from previous generations. Unpredictable weather patterns and changing temperatures all have an impact. All of these things, uh, while these things are things that are discussed at a global and national level, um, these things also have impacts on the daily lives of Inuit uh, who, who continue to live on the lands, waters, and ice in, the, in their traditional territory. So we see it from uh, we see these impacts as we're out hunting and harvesting, traveling, um, uh, uh, getting food, um, picking berries. Um, these impacts are, are, are prevalent in, in our lives and. So our call at the United Nations was to really was really about um, calling upon Canada 
to to uphold our rights and, and to respectfully and accurately implement UNDRIP um, so that we um, can be a part um, of, of solutions moving forward. You mentioned uh, earlier the importance of uh, di- cultural diversity uh, within the science. You know, for some people who may not quite understand what that means, who may think, well, mm-hmm. science is just the facts. What does cultural diversity add to science? Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a very good question. And, you know, in our context, it comes down to climate governance and who gets to be an actor in, in climate governance, right? And the reality is the decisions that we make um, come from our values. So how we approach climate change is largely informed by what people think is important to them, what they want to sustain, how we want to continue living in our spaces, in our places, right? Um, so... It's important, cultural diversity is important because climate change impacts it impacts our communities and our lives, impacts the lives of Indigenous peoples, impacts the traditions, the activities, um, ways of giving expression to culture. All of these things are impacted. So that diversity is important because we all need to be able to bring our um, unique and distinct values Um, to the table in responding to climate change. But in addition to that, uh, we also have to understand that knowledge systems and science um, exist outside of um, the Western world. In Indigenous peoples, including Inuit, we've always had our own systems of knowledge. Um, I would very much argue that uh, uh, people in my community are often much better researchers and scientists than I am. They're the ones living on the land, experiencing the impacts every day, making the observations to make the novel uh, to make novel decisions about how to continue to live and adapt to the changing environment. They're the real scientists and the real researchers in my regard. So I really privilege and uphold the knowledge that they're willing to share um, as well. So it allows us to bring different voices and different values and different forms of science and knowledge to the table to make the best decisions, uh, particularly on an issue as um, uh, as global, I guess you can say, as climate change. We're all, we're kind of all in this together, right? Thank you very much for speaking with me today. Nakumik, uh, thank you. Thank you. That is the um, uh, Amy Hudson there speaking with uh, Noah Shepard, VOCM's Noah Shepard. Amy is the Chief Governance Officer and Rights Negotiator with the uh, NCC, the New Etuvut Community Council. And, um, of course, they're in, uh, the United, at the United Nations in New York uh, discussing the concerning climes of climate change in northern indigenous communities. I'm a bad boy. I'm a little bit late for the news, but we're going to go right there now. Uh, I'm Brian Callahan in for Linda Swain on News Talk. We'll be right back. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. And it's Brian Callahan back 
uh, in today on News Talk for Linda Swain. And as mentioned earlier, uh, lots going on in the news, especially not the least of which, of course, is the resumption of the House of Assembly spring session today. And, uh, you know, while question period went ahead earlier this afternoon, there was uh, no shortage. <laughs> the fireworks, whether or not it's good or bad or indifferent, it's always um, always interesting, to say the least. And I'll bring in our legislative reporter, Richard Duggan, to confirm that. How's it going? Good, Brian. Good. It was... Uh... <laughs> I want to say a subdued session of the House of Assembly earlier today. Like after almost three weeks off, we were kind of expecting a bit more fireworks for for the session to be a bit more raucous. We didn't really get that today. Uh, no shortage, though, of interesting topics to talk about. Um, top of which uh, was, of course, the fishery, and that's been top of the news for the last number of weeks now in regards to uh, the snow crab and the price that has been set, and uh, we even had Greg Pretty on the show yesterday to yep. for his response to the ASP. Um, so that was exactly how uh, opposition leader David Brazel chose to start his question uh, questions today, and it was interesting. Um, I, I, we do have a clip uh, to play, um, but I will say uh, during it, uh, the premier mentions how they have written the federal government uh, in regards to any potential supports um, for harvesters. Now, in the clip, um, he doesn't actually get into what exactly support they're looking for, and he elaborated with us after that. Uh, specifically, they're looking for uh, expansion of EI supports to hopefully help people now, because of course they're not going out on the water, so that's money out of their pockets. So, arguably, uh, what, what the government would say is all they can do, considering the feds have control over what goes on offshore, and we. We have control on what goes on in short. That's exactly right, Brian. And, and uh, the premier does go into that uh, in the clip that we'll hear now in a second about the fact that, you know, they don't really, they can't control the markets. They can't control this. All they could do is say, hey, guys, get together and try to work this out. So uh, we have a clip for you now from the House of Assembly, and uh, let's yeah. hear what they had to say. And I shouldn't say inshore. I meant onshore. Yes. Oh, I'll, get, I'll, get, I'll get emails about that. Here we go. Speaker, we're all concerned about the price of crab and the viability of the market. This is a billion-dollar industry in this province, and people don't know where to turn. They don't know how they're going to pay their bills. Premier, what are you going to do to help these people? The Honorable the Premier. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. And first of all, let me say how much we value the fish harvesters and the people who work in the plants around our province, Mr. Speaker. They not only contribute to the economic value of the, to the province, Mr. Speaker, but contribute socially uh, to why we're here, Mr. Speaker. Uh, I have to say that uh, I can appreciate the symbolism of the question, Mr. Speaker, but of course, as the Conservative members would know, there is no role for us to play in dictating the marketplace, Mr. Speaker. We don't, we don't, we can't dictate supply or demand, Mr. Speaker. We can't make billions of people in Asia buy crab, Mr. Speaker. We can't make 330 million Americans buy crab, Mr. Speaker. What we can do and what we will do is commit to help those who have been displaced. And I am happy to say that the minister, our minister, has written the federal government to ask for support, Mr. Speaker. The Honourable the Leader of the Official Opposition. Mr. Speaker, I want to make it clear to the Premier that the Progressive Conservative Party in Newfoundland and Labrador supports the fishing industry and all components in the yeah, people yeah, of that yeah. All parts of Newfoundland and Labrador. Speaker, while our province's strongest fishery remains at a standstill and rural Newfoundland and Labrador hangs in the balance, the Premier doesn't seem to be paying enough attention to this valuable industry. Premier, what are you going to do to get the billion-dollar industry going again? 
The Honourable the Premier. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Once again, we appreciate the hardworking women and men who work in this industry, Mr. Speaker. We will be there to support them, Mr. Speaker. I'm at a loss, Mr. Speaker. Does the member opposite suggest that we should be subsidizing crab, Mr. Speaker? Does he think that we have control of the Chinese marketplace, Mr. Speaker? Does he think that we should be phoning the President of the United States, Mr. Speaker, and demanding that they buy crab, Mr. Speaker? The problem is the marketplace, Mr. Speaker. And as a Conservative, I would think that he under would understand market dynamics and the invisible hand that shifts the market, Mr. Speaker. It's not our hand. The Honourable the Leader of the Official Opposition. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. And again, I'll say, as a progressive conservative in Newfoundland Labrador, here, here. we want somebody to take the lead and do something for the Speaker, last week in the media, the Premier said that he, he was interested in exploring outside bars. Has he made a decision? The Honourable, the Premier. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker, and happy to clarify words that are being put in my mouth, Mr. Speaker. That's not what I said. What I said was, if the FFAW came with a proposal, I'm not sure that was a question that was posed to me in the media, Mr. Speaker. If the stakeholders involved suggested that that was a good idea, we'd be open to a conversation about it, Mr. Speaker. That was the only comment I made, Mr. Speaker. The Honourable, the Leader of the Official Opposition. So again, no stance on the fishing industry in Newfoundland and Labrador. Typical. Speaker, the crab uh, fishery helps fuel rural Newfoundland Labrador. When the fishery fails, all of Newfoundland and Labrador fails. Plant workers, truckers, grocery stores all suffer. What is the Premier going to do to get our most lucrative fishery going again? The Honourable the Premier. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. As we've said many times, we hope that the parties will continue to speak, Mr. Speaker. They both recognize that this is a marketplace dynamic that's beyond the, either one of their controls, frankly, Mr. Speaker, and beyond government's control. It shouldn't be in the purview of government to dictate a marketplace, Mr. Speaker. I would think that a progressive conservative or a conservative by any other name would understand that, Mr. Speaker. And we will be there. He's asked what we will do to, to help, Mr. Speaker. We will be there with the federal government, Sounds I'm like sure, to continue to support this vital industry, Mr. Speaker. Well, I don't know about you, Richard, but I lost count of Mr. Speaker. How many Mr. Speakers are in that house today? That's what I need to know. Well, like I said, I'd, <laughs> I wish I had a quarter for how many times they said it. A <laughs> uh, quarter? Jeez, we'd both be rich. We, yeah. uh, we wouldn't get out on a flight, but at least we could go when we can. That's right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right, Richard, listen, thanks very much for doing that. Uh, you're in the House all week? Yes, that's right. Uh, I'll be in the House of Assembly uh, tomorrow. They start a uh, half an hour later. And one of the interesting things, Brian, that we'll be following this week is the fact that uh, they're still getting into some of the, the budget uh, right. debate right now because when the budget was introduced late last month, uh, they only had four days uh, of sitting time yep. so now they're really going to get into that and they're going to try to get that passed as soon as possible so that's some of the stuff that we're going to be watching that's a great i really appreciate you saying that that's a perfect segue to after we get out of the break we're going to go to a break here now in a moment but uh, when we come back from that i have one of that actually this morning as you mentioned the budget uh, debate uh, that also includes estimates mm -hmm. where they sit down and go line by line through each department and the the, the opposition or whoever wants to in the house can can critique and ask questions about where this bit of money because a lot of times you see a pot of money doesn't necessarily say how it's going to be spent so that's the process where we go through that happened this morning for the department of by trying to keep departments titles clean or clear are tourism culture arts and recreation mm -hmm. which used to be something else but anyway and was something else before that so uh, that happened this morning the budget estimates and when we come back from the break we'll uh, we'll have um, some critique of where they're spending their monies particularly in tourism i'm brian callahan on on uh, news talk for uh, linda swain and we will be right back 
nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Brian Callahan back uh, with you today on News Talk in for Linda Swain for a few days this week. And um, thanks again to Richard Duggan, who was just here for a little, um, brought in some tape of the question period in the House. Of course, as mentioned, back for the spring session. And uh, that was this afternoon. Earlier this morning, as we just talked about briefly, were budget estimates. That can be a little dry, but... Um, and it continued in committee style sort of uh, um, style this morning in the House. Um, this course is in is the whole budget estimates. They go line by line through each um, a department, you know, a scrutiny of, of basically where they're spending their money. People want more information, how it's being spent compared to last year and on and on. And this morning it was the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts and Recreation's turn. And uh, one of the areas they zoomed in on, of course, uh, by the opposition was air travel. Uh, now that I have all of your attention, uh, a constant thorn in our side, of course, for all the historic and well-documented reasons that we know of. Um, I don't know about the rest of you, but days and days of being socked in like this uh, when summer's supposed to be coming, all I can think of is, a, of course, a nice jaunt down south or even something overseas. But then my thoughts turn to my own personal recent trials and tribulations of such a trip. And I won't get into any detail, but, you know, it just uh, was delay and cancellation, several days lost. Um, but then, you know, uh, this is all notwithstanding this past weekend's combination of, you know, crosswinds and fog that that uh, caused a lot of delays and cancellations at the airport. Um, the perfect storm, as I said earlier, to, to disrupt flights, that is, you know. So issues challenged, you know, faced by all airports. These are, you know, all airports are facing issues with airlines and, and especially post-pandemic. But especially Atlantic Canada, uh, we just lost WestJet. No sign of WestJet coming back to these parts again. So this morning, um, PC opposition, uh, MHA, uh, Jeff Dwyer for, I believe, Placentia West Bellevue, I believe. Um, he had a chance to uh, ask and question Minister Steve Crocker, the minister for the aforementioned departments, particularly around tourism. He's also the government house leader, of course. He had an opportunity to ask him about the spending uh, in the department, particularly when it comes to uh, the tourism side of things and air travel. Minister, the air access uh, continues to play Air Province. We don't get uh, accidental or accidental tours with fewer flights, uh, higher costs, and recently WestJet pulling its direct flights from St. John's. What is the government doing to solve this issue? Uh, we're, we're doing absolutely everything that we can. It's extremely challenging. Uh, we've knocked on every door just a week and a half ago. We joined uh, our airport authorities um, in Montreal to sit down with Air Canada. I think the first time in many, many decades that you know there were three of our airport authorities in attendance. Typically, airport authorities uh, from from this province or any jurisdiction, you know, don't usually share the same table because it's a very competitive nature of that. Uh, but to impress upon them, you know, uh, Air Canada is still plagued uh, with challenges coming out of COVID. We, we see challenge. Every time we see a challenge, for example, at Pearson, you know, that dribbles down. We've met with all the major airlines. We'll continue to do so. We've made them aware of the fact that, you know, we do have uh, assistance available to them. We, um, but again, you know, we've had airlines, quite frankly, look at us and say, right now, money is not the problem. And unfortunately, uh, all Canadian airports 
are still struggling. The ones in Atlantic Canada are struggling more than, than others in the country. A lot of that is due to uh, the pullout of WestJet. Um, you know, they made a business decision to actually, you know, leave Atlantic Canada. I spoke to the CEO back in November and expressed our displeasure in that. But obviously, you know, they've made the conscious decision to go back to Western Canada. And uh, unfortunately, I don't see them uh, returning in the near future. Um, we've made some inroads with some of the uh, low-cost carriers. You would have seen last year. An increase in the presence of well, well, we've seen Swoop come for the first time. We've seen Flare, uh, and and we see Links, and you know, uh, just recently you would have seen a partnership between PAL and Air Canada, which I think is encouraging as well, because the regional market in, in Atlantic Canada right now is severely challenged. Uh, but you know, we, we'll keep uh, we'll keep the dialogue going with the airlines. But every airline that we've talked to, and we've talked to most that would have an interest in in Eastern Canada, and uh, they are still eyeing 25, 26 for full recovery. Okay. Uh, why don't government have a representative on the Air Access Committee? We don't have a representative, like a, a government representative on the Air Access Committee. With, with HNL. Yeah. Yeah. No. We would. We would have a representation on that. H and L was actually in Montreal with us two weeks ago. Uh, we we work closely with with Hospitality Newfoundland and Labrador on the plan that they formulated uh, during COVID. But quite frankly, it was only last week we talked about the need or the necessity right now to refresh that plan because the roadmap has changed so much. You know, we wrote a plan during the pandemic, not. Uh, I guess not fully abreast of the changes that we are going to see and not fully recognizing um, and there was no way that we could recognize I guess the challenges that we would see at Canada's major major airports and you know the passenger restrictions that we're seeing because it's tremendously difficult to get back to where we were in 2019 when you, we have our major hub in Canada saying we're going to cap the number of, uh, of passengers that are going to fly through our airport in, in a given season. Okay. Uh, you alluded to Victor uh, Maritimes, and just last week Halifax uh, was touting uh, direct flights to Europe, the United mm -hmm. States, and throughout North America. Uh, our people can barely get a direct flight to Halifax. So why is air travel in this province so deplorable? And what marketing initiatives is the province taking to attract better routes and to ex and accessibility for our residents? Can we expect European routes in 2024? So I would disagree with your comment that air travel in the province is deplorable. Okay. I, I, I have a lot of respect for our airport authorities, and they do a lot of hard work. So I think they'd be disappointed to hear you use the words deplorable as well. Um, they, they put a lot of time and effort into attracting airlines from around, around the world. And we've, you know, we've, we've worked very well with our airport authorities. Um, we've offered them assistance. We've given them assistance. Quite frankly, last year we invested, I think, with St. John's uh, $500,000 through IET and Gander and Deer Lake as well, $250,000. But, you know, they face the challenges when they go to, uh, you know, uh, connectivity meetings, Roots America, as, as an example, uh, it's a very competitive nature. And quite frankly, uh, what you're seeing in Halifax, as much as you know, we we 
would want to be the hub. The, the reality is that Air Canada recognizes Halifax as the regional hub. Um, aircraft, you know, we've we've pursued the routes of European, you know, one of our main things, and myself and Minister Parsons in IET talked about this on a regular basis, is getting direct access back to Europe. Um, you know, we lost air access to Europe uh, with the MAX 8 challenges back pre-pandemic. Uh, we will not see direct activity this year again to Europe. You know, we had the discussion again two weeks ago uh, with Air Canada. Uh, you know, there is a glimmer uh, that they would get there, but right now um, their challenge with a direct connection to Europe from the Air Canada standpoint is is aircraft availability, and they're waiting on some new aircraft that they would need before you would see uh, before you would see direct connectivity back back to Europe. But it is a major priority of ours, uh, and quite frankly, I think if if you were to sit down with the, the St. John's Airport Authority, you know it's it's their number one priority. But in that being said, while we're waiting for that time to come, because I would never ever not advocate first and foremost for uh, direct connectivity anywhere, because obviously people want to fly direct. But it's also important on, until that day comes is that we uh, work with the airlines to make sure that connectivity meets yeah. the, the threshold as well. So if you're, if you're flying from you know, New York directly into Halifax or London directly into Halifax, that when you get off that flight, you have the proper connectivity mm -hmm. uh, to get to get you here. Because quite frankly, if you think about the Newfoundland Labrador tourism market, a, a lot of the destinations in our province, other than the capital city, will, will never have direct connectivity. If you think about Gross Morn, uh, they're like the West Coast, you know, they're not going to have direct connectivity to, direct connectivity to Europe or to the U.S. So it's important that we, you know, obviously always want direct connectivity, but uh, connectivity in itself uh, is a challenge. And in deplorable, I didn't uh, allude that to the people that are in our uh, airport authorities. It's just the network itself that I'm alluding to. Yeah, fair. Um, you know, it's it's challenging when you have a carrier leave a market. Yeah. There, there's no doubt about that. WestJet leaves in a time when Air Canada's capacity is is challenged, and you have an airline retreat. Um, that that's certainly. Uh, brings forward a challenge. And quite frankly, Air Canada itself has to get back to their capacity numbers, let alone eat up that capacity that WestJet has, uh, has abandoned. And that is the uh, Minister of um, Long Name Department, but specifically tourism in this case, uh, going back to the air travel. Steve Crocker there, also the government house leader for the Liberal government. And of course, asking him questions was Jeff Dwyer, the PCMHA for... Placentia West Bellevue. So um, I'm sure that conversation is not going away anytime soon. Um, are you having trouble getting flights? Are you having trouble getting a direct flight? And keeping in mind, of course, direct flights aren't necessarily direct. I mean, direct could mean you're getting there, but you might have three stops along the way. It's the um, nonstop flight. Those are the key words you want to see usually when you're booking a flight. If it's nonstop, you know you're on your way. If it says um, uh, direct and it's got nine hours next to it. It's probably not the best flight for you. Uh, you're doing a milk run, most likely. 
We're almost up to, um, i got another minute or so here, Claudette, uh, who's been frantic behind the scenes here, by the way. She doesn't get enough of a shout-out for keeping the whole show and the machine working here. Um, tomorrow, Claudette, we're going to talk, uh, I mentioned to Claudette off-air that got a couple emails recently about people coming out of the winter and having real issues with their vehicles, just trying to get a simple fix to this noise or that noise, mm-hmm. and uh, not having a lot of luck, and in fact, getting stuff and fixed stuff fixed that doesn't need to be fixed in some cases have you got a nightmare story about a garage um, feel free to share it here we'll try to keep names and businesses out of it just for now at least share your experience and um, any uh, anything you've learned from it Claudette have you got one no uh, <laughs> you know I've just read stories uh, I know there was an article uh, this was a way back though in the Los Angeles Times and they had a study out showing that women were quoted higher prices at uh, repair shops than men especially uninformed women so that's what I in the back of my mind if ever there were a problem in my vehicle I would want somebody with me that was knowledgeable so that people wouldn't look at me and try to fleece me. I do mm. believe that there could be a gender thing in this, in, in women getting fleeced. I have no doubt. Shops. I mean, you know, even senior citizens or people that seem vulnerable. Uh, I'm not saying, let's let's be clear here, we're not talking about all garages. Do this no, right. just but, in general, like certain places. Yeah, and we've all got a story. And, mm-hmm. um, and you know, some of them, uh, the, the trick is, of course, they know more than you do. There's no question. If right. you knew more than them, you wouldn't be going to mechanic. You'd fix it yourself. And, you know, there's even great funniest commercials out there about some kind of name they've come up with for the noise that's happening and you've never heard it <laughs> and you just yeah. more often than not people are just satisfied to go okay fix it i gotta have it done it's happened to you it's happened to me and i'm not yeah. going to get into a personal no. experience a couple of years ago but uh i know it happens and that's why it's an issue and people always ask me about how i managed to deal with it and got it settled uh others have your st- we know the stories are out there so tomorrow's show Barring any late-breaking news that might have to dominate it, we're going to take, again, your calls, uh, 273-5211-709. Of course, same as open line uh, for News Talk. Uh, Brian Callahan in for Linda Swain for a few more days this week yet. Right now, though, we're off to the news with Noah Shepard. Have a great afternoon.